May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Well, there is this distinct irony in reading a text about dry things on a day such as this. The Bible, after all, is filled with water imagery, but lo and behold, here we are with the famous story from Ezekiel. Now, if the choir wants to hum along underneath this, you may. There is a famous anthem based on this text, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, who brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. God led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And God said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and you will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied suddenly, there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, and there was no breath in them. Then God said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as God commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
The New Testament passage is from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simeon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her up by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of God for the people of God. The title of today's sermon is Seeing Life in the Deserted Place. As I mentioned in the e-news that you hopefully received on Friday, this is the first Sunday in February February being Black History Month, and it just so happens that I am preaching in this space. To be sure, this was not intentional, although it may seem like it was. I am, after I uh, volunteer and and work with our young folks, I'm hopping on a flight heading to uh, Methodist Theological School in Ohio, where I'll be doing some lecturing and teaching, and so it was uh, convenient in some ways, and a joy for Molly and I to do a little, uh, I don't know if you want to call it pulpit exchange, technically it's the same church, but you know what I mean, for us to do a little switch. But I would, it would be dishonest of me to pretend that I don't believe a part of my call to Westwood, that a part of my call to ministry is to speak, to write, and to teach about the healing that I believe our Christian tradition needs. My friends, all of us have experienced particular traumas that have been morally justified by our Christian faith, traumas that have been morally justified by our Methodist doctrines specifically. Racism, patriarchy, classism, ableism, ageism, queer hate, All of these are symptoms of a deeper malady, a deeper trauma that lives within us and operates within our denominational systems. These passages in Mark and Ezekiel speak to this trauma and point to the potential healing that we can hope for, healing that we can work towards, healing that I believe God is pulling us towards. In Ezekiel, we see a prophet looking down and examining a valley full of bones, but not any bones, 
full of dry bones. For any of you who perhaps are familiar with the way in which animal life decays, you know that for bones to be dry, it must mean that this, this life that was flesh on the bones must have passed long ago, that these bones indeed had been dead for a long time, long enough for them to dry out. And the breaking apart, the, the spreading of these bones is representative for Ezekiel in this passage of the breaking up of Israel, having been conquered by Babylon and indeed scattered. They were, in fact, a broken people. The United Methodist Church is, in many ways, in the midst of a breaking apart right now. We have already begun to split, some becoming independent churches, others joining the new global Methodist Church, and this split, broadly speaking, is over whether or not we should view queer folk as full human beings. This split is drawn over the idea that some people should be treated as humans and other people should be treated, and to an extent, as less than the full children of God. This split follows an unfortunate pattern in our Methodist history. Now, those of you who have been Methodist for a long time, or even just for at least four years, are likely to be aware that every four years, each conference, which is a regional group of Methodist churches, sends delegates to what's called a general conference. And this general conference is a representative, representative gathering of the entire United Methodist Church. Our own Pastor Molly is a representative uh, for the CalPAC annual conference, um, and she will be attending general conference. And I am grateful that I am not attending general conference. (laughs) They tried to get me, but I said no. One of, if not the most pivotal general conferences in the history of our denomination took place in 1844, when Bishop, Bishop James Andrew of Georgia was suspended from his office because he chose to keep slaves that he had inherited through his wife. You see, in this time in American history, in this time in Methodist history, there had been rising tensions within the church over the sin of slavery. And these tensions mirrored what was taking place all over the country. The rise of the abolitionist movement forced the Methodist church to deal with slavery in ways that they historically had sidestepped and tried to avoid. A resolution was written and passed by the North Carolina delegation, and this resolution reads as follows, quote, We believe an immediate division of the Methodist Episcopal Church is indispensable to the peace, prosperity, and honor, honor of the southern portion thereof. We regard the unwarranted interference of the northern portion of the church with the subject of slavery alone, a sufficient cause for the division of our church. With the subject of slavery alone, they believed it was a sufficient cause for the division of our church. What this resolution represents is the theological justification of the dehumanization of black and indigenous folks in America. This, the southern white members of the Methodist church believe that in order to preserve their honor, 
Literally, they wrote down their honor. They needed to preserve slavery. They needed to preserve an oppressive racial caste system. As a consequence of the 1844 General Conference, the Methodist Episcopal Church split in 1845, and the Methodist Episcopal Church South was established. Not only does this split predate the Civil War by almost 15 years, it also precipitated splits among the Presbyterians and Baptists. Notably, the acceptance of the sin of slavery is the genesis for the Southern Baptist Church, the largest mainline Protestant denomination in America today, finds its birth in arguing for slavery. Mortal, can these bones live again? In 1939, after nearly 100 years of separation, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South and the Methodist Protestant Church united to become the Methodist Church. This unification could be seen as a glorious event. One might say it should have been seen as a glorious event, amending and healing of the past wounds regarding the sin of slavery and racism, except, except... For that 1939, there was a condition on the unification that was the creation of what was called the Central Jurisdiction, which was a segregated conference where all the black and other people of color could exercise denominational influence in their churches apart from the white churches. This means that if a church that was deemed to be a black church was, for instance, in CalPAC, they would not be a part of the California Pacific Annual Conference. They would have been a part of what was then called the central jurisdiction, meaning this is where they actually could pass resolutions and vote. They were segregated from the other churches with whom they were allegedly supposed to be connected to. What we have here is the moralization of segregation, a theological justification for the sin of racism where black and brown bodies are seen as contaminating something pure, something believed to be holy. Indeed, in order to preserve whiteness, in order to preserve this alleged purity, in order to preserve this alleged holiness, white members were willing to dehumanize all non-white bodies. So I ask, mortal, can these bones live again. And now we move to the General Conference of 1968, where the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren have decided to unite as one church. We must not forget that this historic occasion surrounded, was surrounded by the social and political struggles of the 1960s, and particularly 1968. In 1968, there was growing opposition to the war in Vietnam. Students were protesting in the war across college campuses. Just one year earlier, Martin Luther King gave his most powerful speech that I wrote about a few weeks ago, Beyond Vietnam, where he argues that the Vietnam War was a symptom of a greater American malady, the triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism. Just one year later, During just a few months before this general conference, in April of 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. A few months after King, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. This was a time of great social upheaval, a time when America was trying to figure out who it was and who it was going to be. So I asked mortal, can these bones live? With the backdrop and foregrounding of all these events, the United Methodist Church came to be. With the joining of the church 
also came the dissolution of the segregated central jurisdiction and the inclusion of full ordination rights for women. There had been many activists within the church pushing for the elimination of the central jurisdiction. Similar to Ezekiel, these Christians heard God's call to prophesy to the dry bones of the Methodist church. Activists who had been arguing for the inclusion or for the dissolution of the central jurisdiction and the inclusion of full clergy rights for women, people such as Astor Kirk, May Hudson, Joseph Lowry, and Woody White, saints who deserve to be named. And so these saints, they prophesied to the dry bones so that the church might hear God's call for love and justice for all of God's children and fashion together a church that might embody the prophetic witness that they were called to. Mortal, can these bones live again? In this unification event that we see in Ezekiel, this vision of dry bones coming together, bone on bone, flesh on flesh, flesh tying and binding it all together, this is made manifest before their very eyes. And yet, despite this dramatic coming together that we witness in Ezekiel, our denomination finds itself still struggling with separation, still struggling with segregation, despite the fact we have passages and we have a history that shows us that our divisions often show that one side, the side that chooses to dehumanize, the side that chooses to let other people not be seen as the full image of God, that side has historically always been on the wrong side of history. They have chosen sin over love, and yet they still struggle to see the inherent dignity in all human life. Mortal, can these bones live again? Lord God, only you know. You see, throughout our history, our denomination has struggled to recognize that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is not a personal gift given to a specific group of folk who believe that they image God more so than anyone else. Rather, the Spirit of God is a communal property poured out among the community of faith, made available to everyone, to all of God's children, because we are all created in the image of God. We all are created in the image of God. All too often, the dominant group in power has focused on themselves and their desire to appear pious within their community rather than focusing on the humanity of those whom they are marginalizing, rather than focusing on the humanity of those whom they are dehumanizing. So in 1845, we see white Christians more concerned about preserving and theologically justifying the sin of slavery so as to not look like they are giving in to the political and social pressure of the abolitionist movement. In 1939, we see white Christians more concerned about creating a faux unity with the southern churches and theologically justifying the sin of racial segregation so as to not look like they are giving in to the political and social pressures of the civil rights movement that is now arguing for equal rights for women to be included in the language of civil rights. And we stand here today in the denomination where members of some of our churches are more concerned with appearing pious, of looking like they practice what they believe to be a strict and traditional form of Christianity, rather than acknowledging that the ways in which their practice of Christianity dehumanizes some of God's children, people whom they claim to love. However, 
if your practice of Christianity dehumanizes someone, if your Christian practice places a racial hierarchy on someone, if your Christian practice places a gender or sexual orientation hierarchy upon someone, then your Christian practice is inconsistent with the gospel of love and justice that we find in Jesus Christ. It is inconsistent with the vision of coming together that we have seen throughout this text we call the Bible. All too often those in power get caught up in preserving that power over others, and they try to restrict the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. They try to restrict something that God willingly pours out to all who believe. Now, this restriction is a consequence of their own particular traumas, traumas that they refuse to deal with and tend to because doing so requires overcoming their fears of internal examination. You see, as Ezekiel is writing this passage, he is reflecting upon the traumas that he and his community have inherited. They, too, have been suffering under under the yoke of oppression, and this verses represent a shift in the way in which they begin to visualize and imagine the healing that is to come only if they do the work of dealing with their internal stuff, their internal baggage, dealing with the ways in which they are carrying around traumas they are bleeding on to each other. So whether today we are talking about the kinds of traumas we carry around, whether we are talking about racialization, we must understand that this is in fact traumatic for all people. None of us were born with the idea that we were white, black, Asian, indigenous, or otherwise, all we knew is that we were alive, and it was our aliveness that animated us. It was our aliveness that allows children to laugh and to giggle and to run and to be free. It is our aliveness that binds us together. The imposition of a racial identity is indeed traumatic because it takes away a part of who you understand yourself to be and places and forces upon you an identity that you did not choose to carry. And we are socialized to believe it is normal. We are socialized to believe it is how things ought to be. Gender stereotyping is also traumatic. We are born living our lives, as we said, and yet sometime in our lives people tell you that this is what a boy does or this is what a girl does or certain people dress like this or certain people don't dress like that, and you are forced to conform or else. Ableism is traumatic when we do not create abilities and spaces for people who are not fully able-bodied as we are. We are trafficking this particular kind of trauma. Our inability to become this imaginary default person, this person in our mind that is thinner than we are, that is richer than we are, that has a better job than we have, that lives in a better house than we have, this imagined person that dictates so many of our choices is a carrying of trauma. But church, the good news that we find in Ezekiel is that despite the faults and failures of human beings, God is at work in us and through us. This good news is replicated in the Gospel of Mark where we find Jesus engaging in his ministry of healing. Like Ezekiel, Jesus recedes to a quiet place, an apparently deserted place to reflect, to pray, and to listen. And it is in this place that appears to be deserted, a place that appears to have no life, we find Jesus breathing life into it, preparing to go and do the work that God has called him to do. You see, all too often in these deserted places, these abandoned valleys is where you 
find life. When you open your eyes and look, you see life in places that perhaps our privilege has blinded us from actually noticing. You see life in the homeless shelter for teenage youth if you take the time to look. You see life in the underfunded public school where the teachers stay after even though they are not compensated to work with the kids to get them up to their standards. You see life in the LGBTQ student groups. You see life in the clergy women's gathering. You see life and the liberation theologies emerging from South America, Asia, and Latin America. You see life in the form of a black pastor preaching in front of a predominantly white congregation about racism and other forms of dehumanization. This is where we see life today. So when God asks us, mortal, can these bones live again? Mortal, can this church live again? We can be assured that although initially when viewed through our mortal eyes, all we may see is a valley of dry bones, But as Jesus says, those who have eyes to see, let them see. And when we see this valley through the eyes of Christ, we can see these bones coming together. When we see this valley through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, we can see the broken body of the church being put back together. By seeing through the eyes of God, we are putting our faith in God, which requires committing ourselves to God and God's purposes, which requires seeing the suffering of the world as God's suffering, which requires treating the least of these as though they represent God in the flesh, which requires accepting that the Spirit of God has been poured out among all children, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, class, belief, or unbelief. When we see through the eyes of God, we will bear witness to the church beginning a new life in the Spirit. When we see through the eyes of God, we will know that all of God's children, all of God's children are alive and at work within the call that God has placed upon them. When we see through the eyes of God, we can see and we can have the courage to prophesy to the dry bones of our churches of our communities, of our families, of our friends, and tell them that we will no longer stand for the dehumanizing politics of exclusion because the Spirit of God has been poured out among all of God's children. Amen? Amen.